Matthew 12. We have a short section to tackle this morning. We're moving verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to us, this is how we do things. We go through books of the Bible, and we have a beautiful section ahead about hope and justice. So let's do this. Once you have it, would you stand to your feet? We're going to read the section together. Matthew 12. We're picking up at verse 15. Matthew 12, 15. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, Matthew 12, 15. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was, 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles, you could translate that, the nations. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles or the nations will hope. You can have a seat. Father, you uh, tell us in the scriptures very clearly that you're a God of justice and a God of hope. In fact, uh, the Bible describes you in Romans as the God of hope. And we're grateful that Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 1.1, is our hope. We are in a world desperately longing for hope. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of hope with a king who is not only the king of love and the king of truth, but he also embodies hope and justice. Those will be big themes for us this morning. And they are uh, characteristics of your nature that we need to understand because we want to worship you for who you are and also want to be more like you, Lord. So would you help us to help me to teach your word faithfully? Help us to respond to it in a way that would glorify you with the intent of obeying what you teach us. Uh, let us see afresh some ideas about the gospel that maybe we don't always connect to the gospel, that is uh, justice and hope. And I pray that you would be pleased in what happens here and that you'd be speaking to our hearts and that the spirit of the living God would have your way in this church, I pray in Jesus' name. If you agree, would you say amen? amen. Now, you'll notice in this section... Um, a lot of your Bibles will have this italicized or capitalized. And you can see from 17 down, there's a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased and following. And that is a direct quote, if you're a note taker, from Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42 is the first of four servant songs. So, the servant songs are prophecies about the coming Messiah captured in the description, the servant of Yahweh. And in the book of Isaiah, if you've studied through the book of Isaiah, you know that the prophet Isaiah was given a tough job. He was told that he was going to preach a message of warning to the nation, and they would keep on listening, but they would not hear, they would not repent. And he had to preach some difficult stuff to them about coming judgment and God's ways not being honored. But throughout the book, every time you're reading a portion of Isaiah, if you've never read through it before and you feel like, oh man, this is just a total bummer section, hope begins to emerge. And God, whenever he's dealing with us, he wants to give us hope to hold on to. And one of those handles that we can hold on to in the book of Isaiah is captured in the servant songs or the servant of Yahweh. So let me give you the addresses for those of you who'd like to go back and look at these. There's four of them in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. Isaiah 50, 4 through 11. And then Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. One of these will come to mind for you immediately. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about the suffering servant. That's the fourth servant song. 
And that's where it says that Jesus would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, etc. Now those prophecies in Isaiah were written about 700 years before Jesus was born, obviously 700 plus years before his earthly ministry. And one of the things that they reveal about the Messiah is that he would be a servant. He he said to the disciples when they were arguing, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And he said, essentially, if you're going to be great, you must be also servant of all. He demonstrated that servant's heart in washing their feet and so many other things that he did, right? He was a servant. And ultimately, he had come to serve his father, but he also had come to serve us by paying the ultimate price for our sin. So Jesus was among us as one who serves. And we can be thinking about Jesus, obviously, first and foremost. This passage is about Jesus, and we want the focus to stay there. But this passage is also filled with a lot of application. Because we're to walk in the same manner as he walked. So be watching out for cues about your own Christian life. What does God say hope is about, justice is about? How am I supposed to walk as a follower of Christ? Let's pick up the account in verse 15. In his name, the nations will hope. Jesus, aware of this, Matthew 12, 15, what was he aware of? Well, he was aware of the evil intentions of the religious elite, the Pharisees, namely in verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, this is where one scholar says the backroom conversations begin to emerge about the cross and that The Pharisees are planning the demise of Jesus. They want to destroy him. Question, why? What has he just done? Two miracles or two teachings, if you will, on the Sabbath day. One was the apostles picking the the heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. And the religious leadership seemed to be always hiding behind a bush or something, right? Hey, what are you doing? You know you're in trouble if you're living your life that way, by the way. If you're always the judgmental police, hey, hey, what are you, hey. Well, that's what they were doing, and they would huddle up, you know, why is he doing that? What's he doing? And Jesus appeals to Scripture. Haven't you read? And he goes back, and Shane taught us those stories last time. And then he goes into the synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. And that man represents the nation, in my opinion, withered. Why? Because they won't really follow God, especially in the upper echelons of leadership. And so Jesus says, hey, is it lawful, boys, since you're worried about dotting your I's and crossing your T's to heal on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? What do you think? If you had an animal, if your dog fell into a well on a Sunday, would you say, well, sorry, buddy, (laughs) I'll be back tomorrow to get you. See, I can't work on the Sabbath day. No, that's ridiculous. If your animal fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you carry him out? Wouldn't you do good? The the Sabbath is not about not moving. It's about having God's heart. And so he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man, how do you stretch out a withered hand? I don't know, by faith. And he stretched out his hand and it became normal and whole. And it's a picture of anyone who would reach out to Messiah, their withered life would be restored, amen, in the most important areas of life. And for that, for a miracle done on a Sabbath, they wanted to what? Destroy him. I mean, you know something's wrong in your life if you see a beautiful miracle occur and all you can do is nitpick and want to destroy the one who did the miracle. But that's where they were at. They had become so blinded by their man-made traditions that they couldn't even see the proof right in front of them. And Jesus was aware of their evil intentions, verse 15, and so he withdrew. He knew that they were going to try to destroy him, and he was on his father's divine timeline. He would die when his father determined and how he determined. And when would he die? On the Passover, He would die in fulfillment of Passover imagery. He would die on a cross, not by being stoned, not by, you know, being attacked by a mob. That that wasn't the Father's plan. And so he withdrew. He withdrew from there. He was aware of their plan, and many followed him. Jesus could never quite withdraw, you know? 
He always had people following him around. And look, he didn't say to those people, can you give me a break? These people are huddling up wanting to kill me. Hello? He didn't ask for people to hear him or anything. What did he do? The Bible says, many followed him and he healed them all. What a gracious God we have. Amen? Never worried about himself. Never worried about the plot hatched against him. He's got people trying to plan his demise and he's just touching people. And there's no detail. This is a comprehensive section. He healed them all. What, what was wrong with these people? Probably a variation of all kinds of different ailments and diseases and problems. And he healed them all. And there's no detail given. And this tells us something about Jesus, that many of his healings were what we would call parabolic. That means they, had, they were like a parable of a spiritual condition. He would heal someone of being crippled, and it was like you know, getting back up again, spiritually speaking. But in, in this case, all the healings that were done were just simply because he's a God of compassion. He healed them all. How many there were, I don't know. But numbers of people, and you could imagine people celebrating and being excited about, look, I can walk, look, I can see. And Jesus did something that always kind of surprises us in the Bible. He warned them not to make him known. <laughs> now, I know you've been healed, but don't tell anybody. Aren't you the guy that used to walk with a limp? Can't tell you. <laughs> Aren't you the guy that used to be blind by the gate? Can't tell you. <laughs> Now here specifically, it doesn't say don't tell them about the healing. It tells them, it says don't make him known. Because the natural question if you got healed is, well, how did it happen? And who healed you? Like the man who was born blind. Who's the one that healed you? We want to know more. And so Jesus makes this warning. What's he trying to do? Well, he took precautions to avoid unnecessary attention or premature confrontation. Uh, he said, don't make me known yet. Don't announce this. Don't broadcast. You know, uh, today's so-called healing ministries would do well to follow the lead of Jesus, don't you think? He didn't say, now go write a book. Now go get interviewed by Fox and CNN. Now Go get in front of a camera and have a press conference and, and make sure you include me and I'll give my website, www.jesusthehealer.com. No, none of that. He didn't want any fanfare. He didn't want any unnecessary attention. That's the heart of our God. And oh boy, I'll tell you, that confronts me right to my core because I don't mind at least from time to time, an attaboy, amen? amen? Or if you're a female, an girl, right? It's not a bad thing, and, and we all need encouragement, but that's not why Jesus was here. He didn't need to go through and people to chronicle every single detail of his healing ministry. He simply healed the people. And Matthew tells us this 17 was in order that what was spoken through Isaiah 700 plus years before through Isaiah, notice he's called Isaiah the prophet, might be fulfilled. If you're interested, uh, this language has been mentioned in Matthew 122 about Jesus being Emmanuel. Chapter 2, verse 15, 223. You can go back and take, uh, listen to this later if you want all the addresses. 817. It'll be ahead of us in 1335 and 214. And in all those cases, Matthew will say, this happened in order that it might be fulfilled. Now, let me just pause just for a second. If you're new to the Bible, one of the uh, validations that the Bible is divine from God is predictive prophecy. Jesus fulfills, some scholars say, 300 plus prophecies in where he's born, how he lives, how he dies, etc. Some people say there's at least 48 messianic prophecies with specifics about details about Jesus' life, and you can go do some research on that. But there are definitely prophets who prophesy about Jesus, and Isaiah seems to be one of Matthew's favorites. And he, and he appeals now to this prophecy in the servant song in Isaiah 42. It's almost directly quoted from the Hebrew, except for a few things that are left out. And the, the servant song says the following, and 
there are going to be four servant songs. And as we study these uh, servant songs in Matthew and other places, the, what emerges is some beautiful descriptions of Jesus. Take a look at some familiar ways he's described. Behold, you could think of the father talking about his son. He describes Jesus as my servant, 18, whom I have chosen. He's the chosen beloved one in whom my soul is well pleased. When the, Jesus was being baptized, the heavens opened and the voice came, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. Later on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. When the heavens were opened, John the Baptist said he saw something else. He saw uh, the Holy Spirit descend on him in the form of a dove, almost like the uh, beginning of his earthly ministry, the empowering of the Spirit. And notice it says, I will put my spirit upon him, echoing Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to open up prison doors, etc. And then something that we may not uh, always connect directly to the gospel of the kingdom of God, and he, Messiah, this servant, shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And if you have an NIV, it says, justice to the nations. Now, something we need to understand about the kingdom of God is this, that the kingdom is now and the kingdom will be. And right now, according to Scripture, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the position of the king. And right now, he is ruling and reigning. And you might say, well, where is it? Do you know where he rules and reigns? In his church. In fact, we, the church, are called to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? When we call Jesus Lord, we're saying king, master. Now, not all the world is obeying Jesus, obviously. We can see that in the fruit of our fallen world. But one-third of the population of the world claims that Jesus Christ is their Lord. And those who have looked at world history have said, and I've said this in the last several weeks, that the world is only somewhat tolerable because of the influence of Christianity. Amen? The Western world has been blessed with the influence of Christianity. And you can see that. You can go all the way back to the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, when they were practicing infanticide and throwing their babies by the sides of rivers for whatever their motivation was, the Christians were coming behind them and picking up those babies and bringing them into their homes. That's the influence of Christianity. The influence of Christianity looked at slavery and said, this is wrong. We're all created equal. And there, was, there were battles to abolish slavery in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in following the biblical model that our God is just. Amen? He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Our God cares about justice. And in the last you know, decade or so, we've heard a lot about justice, haven't we? We've had people arguing in the streets about social justice and who should define justice and who's right and who's wrong. And we've had people two inches away from one another's faces with spit flying saying, I'm right and I'll hold this sign and you're wrong and who's right and who's wrong. And sometimes you look at the world and you're like, this is craziness. Who can actually proclaim what is just and true and right? Well, here's a definition of justice. Since it says Messiah, look at the end of 18, will proclaim justice to the nations. And we're beginning to see a hint that the nations are included in the plan of God. The religious leadership thought that Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, were only good to fan the fires of hell. How do you like that? They didn't even think that if you were Italian, moi, you could end up sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. They go, no, no, you're just going to be part of how we get the fire going again. Oh, wonderful. But the Old Testament hinted, and more than hinted, made clear, that he would proclaim justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. In fact, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And God says, all right, be careful. You're going to go into the land of Canaan. It would become Israel. 
And I don't want you duplicating the detestable practices of those people, the way that they worship, the way that they make their idols, the way that they sacrifice babies to one of their false gods, etc. Don't do that. Don't practice the occult. Don't practice witchcraft. He warns them over and over again. And Israel gets into the promised land. And you know what they do? They start to imitate the detestable practices of those people. And God says, you know what? I judge those people. I opened up this land to you because of what they do. And if you do the same thing, I'm going to judge you the same way. God is no respecter of persons. And what happens? Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom. Why? Because Israel practiced idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC comes and destroys the southern kingdom. Why? Because they practiced idolatry. And in the first century context, in which Jesus is now teaching, Rome is now the dominant force in the world. And Rome will become an instrument of God's judgment some 40 years from this time. And the Messiah would be God's servant, the Father's servant, if you will. He was the chosen one, the beloved one. He always did those things that pleased his Father, just moving through verse 18 here. He would have the Spirit upon him, anointing him. He went about doing good, and he would proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Let me give you a definition of justice. Justice is actually a Hebrew word which links to the blueprint of the tabernacle. Justice is a blueprint for living. Now, if, you, if you've studied the tabernacle before, you know there was a single way to get in. There was an altar of sacrifice. There was a, a basin for washing, etc. You got into the temple proper. There's the showbread. There's the menorah. There's the altar of incense. And then there's the holy of holies. And there's the uh, mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. And what's inside that uh, box, if you will, eventually what goes in there? A jar of manna saved to remember God's provision. And the Ten Commandments were put inside there. Don't worry about what Indiana Jones showed you. This is what the Bible teaches, okay? All right? What does that say? That what God cares about is provision and justice. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will say, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. I want you baptizing them as kind of like a uh, sign that they're coming into the kingdom. And I want you to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That is the Great Commission. Please hear this. The Great Commission is to teach justice to the nations. Now, we live in an unjust world, amen? And sometimes when we look at injustice, when we look at uh, the wrong thing, we, we have recently seen a movie come out about the sex trafficking industry, which is just an ugly, terrible thing, right? But we can go down our list. We can talk about politics. We can talk about, you know, apartheid and all the things that we could mention. And the world is a place that ebbs out injustice. And what God wanted Israel to be, at least this is part of the message, was to be a just nation to show what the leadership of God looked like among a people. And now that light is supposed to exist in you and me. I am supposed to be a man of justice. Now that's not the only thing I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a man of love and truth and mercy and peace and all that. But justice is part of the gospel of the kingdom's equation. Justice is a blueprint for living. Justice just simply means knowing what's right and what's wrong. Amen? And when we see something unjust, what do we usually say? That's, can you say that today? That's wrong. What do you mean wrong? Who knows what's wrong? There's no such thing as absolute truth. Is that an absolute statement? And this is what people do. We, we've so ebbed away at what's right and wrong that we don't even know who's on the right side of justice anymore. Truth, justice, and the American way. Uh, wait, wait a minute, that was Superman, wasn't it? <laughs> anyway. 
But when we see someone who is just, it's so refreshing, isn't it? When we see, when, when we can bank on something that's true and just, if we, if we were to stand before a judge and we said, now I know this man is fair, that's, that's hopeful. You know when we lose hope? When we're not sure what we're going to get. Because someone may have paid this guy a bribe. Or, or this, guy, this guy might be trying to get a political spot, so he's going to treat me one way, but treat this person another way. You know what I'm saying? This is the unjust world we live in. And God said to Israel, I want you to be a just people because that's who I am. And when you have injustice, you have what follows. And this is all through the book of Isaiah. Unjust scales, unjust decisions, unjust treatment. And God would say to the people, look, this, this is not what I want. I want you to uh, show the light, if you will, of justice throughout the world. Israel's to be that city on a hill where everybody could look and say, that's the way it's supposed to work because of the king that they serve. And now to the church. That's the way life is supposed to be because of the Lord that they serve. You get it? That's the role today of the church. How are we doing? Well, sometimes I think we're doing pretty well. There's a lot of beautiful ministry, hospitals, orphanages. Uh, you watch uh, Samaritan's Purse show up to disaster places. You watch beautiful, benevolent ministry and missions go on. And the church does that. And that's to be celebrated. We shouldn't always be critical, right? But then sometimes we watch the church infight and not even know what it believes and why it believes it. And sometimes that hurts our hearts. I want you to, to really have it in your mind. The servant of Yahweh, the Messiah, came to proclaim justice to the nations. He's the reason I know what's right and wrong. He's the reason I know what's good and true. Moses said of God, I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice Righteous and upright is he. That's Deuteronomy 32, 3 and 4. His is a mission of justice. Speaking of the king and the kingdom, Psalm 89, 14 reads this way. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Psalm 97, verse 2. The works, the works of God's hands are truth and justice. Psalm 111, verse 7. There is a blessing for those who keep justice. Psalm 106, verse 3. In fact, justice is a key behavioral uh, aspect of the wise man or woman in the book of Proverbs. You can write down Proverbs 1, 3, Proverbs 2, 8, and 9. And basically what those scriptures say is that a wise man or woman will walk in God's path of justice. They will know what's right and what's wrong. Simply put. Isn't that where most of the confusion exists today? Amen? Sometimes, you know, you, you look at situations, you look at news reports, you look at things that are going on, and you're like, don't people know what's right and wrong anymore? Amen. Amen. But sometimes, even in academia, our youth have been told there's no way to know who's right and wrong anymore. Justice in the Greek, I mentioned Justice in the Hebrew ties to the plan of the tabernacle, a blueprint for living, a blueprint for worship, if you will. Justice in Greek, and the New Testament was written in Greek, is krisin, and it's a word that means judgment. If you look it up in a lexicon, it speaks to decision-making, specifically about right and wrong. It can speak of judicial decisions, like from a judge, but in this case, it speaks of the justice of Almighty God that's pure and right and true. Injustice is the bitter reality of a fallen world. Injustice is the mark of a society that has forsaken God. And what follows is unjust decisions and unjust gain. And it's been said that like in America, as we choose our leaders, we look at our leaders today, and frankly, I have to tell you, that some people say we get what we deserve. 
Now, I know I'm looking at a room of people who really care about justice, right? And sometimes it's even difficult to discern in the political world who's really telling you the truth. Why are they saying the words that they're saying, right? And, and we all wrestle with that. And that can be an endeavor in and of itself. But we also have to look at church leadership. In Psalm 73, Asaph felt hopeless because of the injustice he saw. But in Jesus Christ, love and justice kiss. Good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 37 verse 28 says he loves justice. And in Psalm 82, when the Lord addresses ungodly leaders of that time, Psalm 82, he said to them, vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Psalm 82 verse 3, rescue the weak and needy. And deliver them out of the hand of the wicked, Psalm 82, verse 4. Psalm 25, 8 and 9 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. I would encourage you, do a biblical study on justice. And what you will find is a blueprint for your life. You will find how to make right decisions in keeping with the Lord's heart. This is who the servant was. This is the first in verses 18 through 21 before us in Matthew 12 of four for, uh, servant songs. And since that one's uh, quoted almost directly, I want to show you a few snapshots of the other three in Isaiah. And they put together, they give us a beautiful um, picture of the Messiah. Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. And if you ha are having trouble locating that, we'll try to put that up on the screen. Isaiah 49. This is the second servant song, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. Isaiah 49, verse 1. So we're going back because this is where the prophecy comes from. Take a look. This is the second servant song. And what you'll see sometimes is Israel's mentioned because Jesus is everything Israel was supposed to be. Listen to me, Isaiah 49, 1, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword, Isaiah 49, 2. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I've toiled in vain. It's almost as if no one's listening. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel? I also will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation, notice, may reach the end of the earth. Now, more could be said, but I want to show you the, another one. This would be the third of four servant songs. It's just a page over or, or so in Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah 50. Notice what it says in the third servant song. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. Isaiah 50 verse 4 that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient. Some of you are seeing uh, the bondservant imagery here because that's exactly what it is. He's the servant of Yahweh. I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. This is all fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint. That's what he did. He set his face like flint to Jerusalem. And I know that I will not be ashamed. And then let me show you what the last most famous one. Skipping over to Isaiah 52 and looking at verse 13, leading us into the famous Isaiah 53. It says these words, Behold, look, 52.13, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. 
Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told of them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. And then it gets into the beautiful uh, prophecy that Jesus fulfills in Isaiah 53. Pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, etc. These are the four servant songs turning back to the Gospel of Matthew, celebrating but prophesying the work of Messiah. This is what he would be like. This is what he would do. This is how he would give up his life for those who need hope and restoration, and that's all of us. Now, we're going to get a little bit more, and we're going to move quickly. We're coming down to the tail end of this, but notice some things about how he gives hope to the nations. Matthew 12, 19. After the quotation, uh, the first part of the quotation, he continues from Isaiah 42. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This is a way to say that Jesus was not looking for attention, and he did not have a megaphone necessarily, but he gathered crowds. Why? Because of who he was. Because he was good. So notice it says he won't quarrel in the street. When he moved away from the Pharisees plotting his demise, he did not want to have a shouting match with them. He did not want to get into a debate any more than he needed to, although you, we would say there were times when he puts the Pharisees in their place, and sometimes you're reading your Bible, and you're like, yeah, get them, Lord, right? But according to this prophecy, he wasn't about quarreling or unnecessary confrontation. And all God's people said, yeah, because we should not be about quarreling or unnecessary confrontation. Now, sometimes we have to confront things. And when we do, we need to do it with the Lord's love and truth. But here's what it says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been captive, held captive by him to do his will. Isn't it hard sometimes just to want to talk over someone, especially if they're speaking nonsense, right? They're going on and you're like, oh, oh my goodness. Imagine being Jesus. You know everything and people are going on and on. Yeah, and, and Lord, one more thing I'd like to enlighten you about. And you're talking to the Lord of the universe. One more thing I'd like to uh, enlighten you about on the Sabbath day, just in case you didn't see this little nuance in the original language. Imagine the patience of Jesus. Next time you have a person going on and on and on, and you want to quarrel, <laughs> everything in you wants to just say, let me tell you something. I have socks older than you, boy. Right? I got flies bigger than that fly swatter, girl. <laughs> I know you're 12 now and you think you know everything, but, and we want to put people in their place and in our marriages. Oh, boy. Oh, here we go. We're not supposed to be quarreling. But sometimes our pride gets the best of us and we quarrel and we quarrel right in front of our kids until we get in the car to go to church and they're like, all right, everybody get it together so we can put on the church face. Never mind that I just blasted the whole family with a metaphorical machine gun. They're all bleeding but you need to forgive me because that's what the Bible says. Oh, now you're appealing to the Bible, right? The Lord's bondservant must be like his Lord. We are not to have a confrontational attitude. We're not to be prickly people. We're not to have a deflector shield up where no one thinks that they can get within two feet of us lest they be destroyed, we're not to be in shouting matches with the clerk at Home Depot. Yes, I followed some of you this week. <laughs> Just kidding. 
right? Unnecessary. And then we want to invite the person to church because Jesus is, has given us peace and explained how to live. Really? So, again, we need all the mercy we can get because we all fall short, but Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He wasn't trying to put um, additional weights on people's shoulders. And he didn't want to get into meaningless quarrels. You know, some quarrels are necessary, and obviously when Jesus needed to, he put people in their place. But he didn't do it just to do it. And frankly, there are some quarrels that produce absolutely nothing worth fighting for. Nothing. You ever come to the end of a quarrel and felt like you won the fight, but you still lost? Oh, yeah, right there. That's when I gave it to him. Yeah, but she's your wife. Yeah, but still. (laughs) What? You didn't win anything. So what do you do? Well, you might say, You humble yourself, and you say, well, how do you humble yourself when it's difficult for you to admit you're wrong or to back down? You know what you do? You humble yourself anyway because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. And humility is an invitation to receive God's grace. Humility is an invitation to receive God's grace. And if you just want to quarrel because you like to quarrel, stop it. Because it doesn't produce anything good. A soft answer, Proverbs 15, 1 says, turns away wrath. And here's what we learn about Messiah. A battered reed, look at verse 20, he will not break off. Now, a reed in the ancient world was used for measuring, so they would take a reed and almost like a, a ruler, and if a reed was bent, it wasn't much good. It's like if you had a, you know, a tape, uh, a measuring tape, and the thing was tweaked and bent up. It's not, you're not going to measure stuff with it anymore. Uh, they also say that reeds were used to make musical instruments, but they were used for measuring. So imagine if you had a, a bent or a bruised reed, it was beat up, what would you probably do? Now, some of you have pack rat tendencies, and some of you would save it anyway and say, you know, this could be worth something someday. We have counseling set up for you as well. You got that, you know, measuring tape that's got so much rust on it, nobody even knows what it is anymore. And you look at it and it moves on the workbench. That's a sign that you should probably throw it away. Well, some, sometimes people see battered, bruised reeds and you know what they want to do? They, they just want to throw them away. Well, that's good for nothing anymore. If it can't do its job, if it can't serve as a measuring tape or a musical instrument, well, let's toss it. But Jesus would not break off battered reeds. See, the religious elite of the day said, that person's not even worth your time. That person lying on the side of the road, that person with leprosy, they're under the curse of God. Oh, they were born blind, he's under the curse of God. Oh, Gentiles, they can't go to heaven, they can't inherit the kingdom. And all they had was unjust conclusions, and God had a heart for the nations and always has. And it would be to God that the most religious people of all would be the most embracing. And here's Jesus, and he says, look, if you're bruised, I'm not gonna throw more bruises on you. If you're laying by the side of the road and you're hurt and you say, I don't think I'm good for anything anymore, he would pick you up. He would stop for you. The woman with the flow of blood for 12 years, if I could only touch the hem of his garment. Daughter, be of good cheer. Your your faith has made you whole. I know every doctor's failed you. I know people have moved away from you because they think you're unclean, but I care about you. This is Messiah. This is the kingdom of God. He, He was bruised. The one who would not bruise or break off a battered reed or a bruised reed was bruised for my transgressions. He was wounded for my iniquities. You see what he did? He exchanged places with us. And what did he have to do to humble himself? Oh, I'd say quite a bit. Like I think it took a little bit more for him than it does for us. Amen? And yet he wouldn't kick you to the curb. He won't kick you when you're down. That's not the heart of Jesus. Here's the second 
illustration, a smoldering wick he won't put out. If you have a, a candle at home, and let's say the wick is burned down all the way on the candle, and again, we'll go back to if you have pack rat tendencies, you say, yes, but I could melt this candle down one day for my surfboard. And someone says to you, but you don't surf. And you answer, yeah, but someone might come along that does. <laughs> right? But what would we do? If the wick burned all the way down, hopefully we'll toss that thing away. What good is a candle with the wick gone? Or if it's just smoldering, we might go, Whew. hopefully we're not the people that walk along and we see people smoldering wicks and we go, Whew. Whew. <laughs> that's not Jesus. You know what he did when he saw a smoldering wick? He tried to reinvigorate the flame. When he saw someone who was hopeless and disappointed in leadership, in spiritual leadership, rather than putting out the wick, rather than snuffing them out, he would extinguish. He wouldn't extinguish their light, but he would reinvigorate their light. He would say, I'm the light of the world. Follow me. Your light will shine again. These are the beautiful things about Messiah. He's not looking to beat you up or snuff you out. Rather, He's looking to lead you to victory. Look at the end of verse uh, 20. In the original prophecy of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, uh, justice is mentioned four times. Here, he will, he will do his ministry until he leads justice to victory. I'll tell you what, I am realizing more and more victory in following Messiah. Amen? You know, sometimes we, as Christians, we say, I want to get victory over this. We say, how long have you been wrestling with it? Since 1972. <laughs> like, okay, you could use some victory in this area, but how many areas of your life would you say the Lord has given you victory over? I mean, if, if I invited you guys to come up, I know testimony after testimony would say, I got victory in this area by God's grace. I got victory in this area. I got victory in this area. Amen? I'm not the man I want to be, but I'm not the man I used to be. Praise the Lord. I'm following the train of Messiah, the hope train. And in his name, final verse, the nations or the Gentiles will hope. He is our blessed hope. Isaiah 42, 4 puts it this way. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he, is, he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Another version says, in his law, the islands will put their hope. Father, thank you for... This servant song about Messiah, thank you how Matthew weaves it into the gospel story by the Holy Spirit. Thank you for these realities of who our king is. Our king is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the servant of Yahweh. He came not to be served, but to serve. He, he paid the price, sets the tone, and even gives the power to live like this. This should be a cue for our living, for our evangelism, for everything we're about, Lord. And at the times that we fall short, forgive us because we do. And there's been many, many times when we've not measured up to these, the beauties of who you are. But Lord, we're, we're moving in the right direction. Those of us who are trying to follow you, trying more and more to submit to your lordship, to your lead. You're teaching us what justice is, what hope is, what love looks like, what truth is. Lord, take my life, take my heart, and mold it more into your image. Make me more like you. And thank you that I don't have to do this on my own. I can't do it. Thank you for the resources of heaven, for the truth of the Bible that forms and shapes my life so I can become a vessel fit for the master's use. Let us be men and women of justice in the true definition. Let us be men and women of hope and love. Let us be men and women who celebrate the victory Messiah has brought us. Let us be servants. And even as we think about the 
phrase or the word servant. Let us serve. If there's an area of ministry where we have not engaged, we have gifts we're not using, we have a life that right now is just not in service of the king, forgive us, Lord. We want to get in the game. And if our sin is keeping us back, our pride, our whatever it may be, Teach us to become more like you. Would you just take a, a Selah moment, a moment to pause, take a deep breath, and let the Lord speak to your heart about who you are in him. He, he took the punishment so you don't have to be under the weight of your sin. He is in the conforming business, so you just need to yield a little bit more. He cares about the nations, so however that would speak to you. And he loves you. Yes, you. So receive that hope afresh if you feel like I'm that battered reed. I'm that wick about to die out. He's not going to snuff out the flame. He loves you. He was on the planet to save you. He reigns interceding for you. On Wednesday night, we celebrated that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can count on him to be just and true and loving. And it's good to know that he is reliable and unchanging in a world so filled with change and things that seem so shaky at times. Lord, we're so grateful for that reality in our lives. May that give us hope for those who don't know you yet. I pray they would open their hearts and receive Jesus as their Lord and King, repent of their sin and cry out to you for salvation. I pray for those of us who know you that you just continue to do that work, that faithful work. You never give up on us, even when we end up bruised and battered just so good and we're so grateful that we can rely upon you. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for the last song.